Hello, this is David Gork, Head of Public Policy at McFarland's, and welcome to the latest in our Policy and Practice podcast. I'm delighted to be joined by Rachel Richardson, Head of uh, ESG here at McFarland's, and Gavin Haran, uh, Head of Asset Management Policy. Uh, and what we're going to talk about today is the green finance strategy. So this goes back to uh, the 30th of March, which was um, first billed as Green Day, uh, but subsequently rebranded as uh, Energy Security Day. We might want to discuss uh, why that was, but sort of focus more on energy security than on green. But there was 40-odd documents that were published, various strategies, consultations, responses, and plans. Uh, the uh, constituted uh, more than 2,840 pages, and uh, delighted that with Rachel and Gavin, I'm pretty confident they will have read all of those pages. But we're going to particularly focus on one of the documents, the updated green finance strategy titled Mobilising Green Investment. And the strategy confirmed the ambition of the UK to be the world's first net zero aligned financial centre, a bold ambition. So, Rachel, let me start with you. Why did we need a new green finance strategy? Thanks, David. Well, the previous green finance strategy was published all the way back in 2019 now. So that's more than four years ago. And a lot has changed since then. So that was prior to things like COP26, which obviously we were the host for. It was prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, which actually had this shift of or had the effect of shifting attention towards ESG issues more broadly. But another big change since 2019 is that we now just have a more developed understanding of how the UK might or might not meet its decarbonisation targets and actually, frankly, just how hard it is to achieve them. We also have a whole new department called the Department for Energy Security and Net Zero, who I imagine will deliver on many of the strategies um, set out in the report. But we also now have a deeper understanding of the risks to the economy from things like nature loss, which in the UK is largely down to the Dasgupta review um, by Professor Dasgupta of 2021. And we can thank the Treasury for commissioning that review itself. So government had taken this opportunity to weave nature and nature-related risks and related policies into the strategy. But I suppose more fundamentally entirely, it's become quite clear that we're not on track as a country to meet our net zero targets, which were made legally binding back in 2019. And the court case that was in the High Court in July 2022, that actually agreed that we're not on track to meet those targets. So the government needed to take some action. And then additionally, on more of a macro perspective, we've got things going on in the world, such as in the US, we've got the Inflation Reduction Act, which details really significant levels of investment in the form of things like subsidies and direct investments amounting to nearly 400 billion US dollars, huge amount. And some some people estimate that that amount will actually have the effect of closing this greenhouse gas emissions gap between where they are now with the current policy and where they will be when the IRA is affected. And they think that will close the gap by two thirds, which arguably is is pretty successful. However, we'll have to see how that all plays out to really determine the levels of success. Gavin, do you want to just come in to answer this question of why we need a new strategy as well? 
Yeah, I, I will do. And I think maybe we should just go back to the rebranding exercise that you mentioned, David. And obviously, it's not the first time we've seen the government do this. Big Bang 2.0, the regulatory reforms have been rebranded as the Edinburgh reforms. And we'll come back to that, I think, shortly. But this sort of rebranding from Green Day to Energy Security Day, I think what the government are trying to do here is to balance what is a legal commitment to net zero, as Rachel mentioned, with the the reality that the economy and people's lives obviously depend upon cheap, reliable, stable sources of energy. And obviously, we've seen wholesale energy prices shoot up for a variety of reasons. Obviously, the war in Ukraine, which is part of the reason actually this strategy was delayed to try and take account of all of these these sort of moving geopolitical events and economic events, Uh, but also things like central bank policies and other factors have contributed to that. So you're in this position where the government is trying to balance sort of economic and cost of living reality with this net zero legal commitment. What the strategy says at the outset is that around 90% of global GDP is now subject to net zero commitments. Now, I'm not sure how this was calculated, but I'm sure that's very true. But I think one of the things we need to really point out about where the government is on this is that the UK's net zero legal commitment is quite a bit stronger than many other countries. It depends how you cut it, but you know, some lists of where do you have sort of firm net zero legal commitments is only around sort of between 10 and 20 countries. So that sort of limits the amount of, of you know very, very strong commitments that countries have made to a few nations effectively. Now, this is a legal commitment. So what this means is that effectively the government can set out its policies, but as Rachel alluded to. There is scope for activist groups and others to hold the government to account or to push them to go further on policy. And that's what's happened, obviously, in terms of the the previous green finance strategy. So I think here, when when we're talking through all of this, we'll go through the policies and and what the government is trying to do. But we do have to bear in mind those sort of balancing objectives. You've got the economy, the broader regulatory environment, which I think is quite important in this context because there is so much focus on what the private sector can do to meet the government's commitment. But also this point around the legal status of the commitment and the fact that these policies could move over time if they're perceived to not be strong enough by activist groups in particular. Uh, thank you for that. Now, Gavin, you talked there about what the, the principles are, what the objectives of the strategy are. Rachel, do you want to talk in a little bit more detail about what the key aims of the strategy involves? Yeah, they set out five key aims of the strategy. Um, The first one is to achieve UK financial services growth and competitiveness. And they talk in that context about venture capital investment to support things like innovative climate tech and asset managers as well, helping them allocate capital to support the greener companies of the future. So I suppose it's interesting that point number one, aim number one is growth and with relation to the financial services sector in the UK. Um, the second point, which arguably I would say relates directly to number one, is the mobilising of the private sector investments in the green economy. And they want to get that up to the tune of 44 to 97 billion over the next 10 years. And um, that's pretty significant. Number three is financial stability. I don't think anyone could argue with that as being a, a sensible thing to include. Number four, I've already touched on this already, but but they want to incorporate and they have incorporated nature related um, risks and adaptation um, and how to weave that through the framework. And then number five, the final key aim is to align global financial flows with climate and nature objectives. And Gavin, I mean, anything more you'd want to add on this point about trade-offs, lots of objectives there, how are they going to hang together? 
Well, it's interesting. I mean, part of the debate around this globally has been around public subsidies for the net zero transition, for green investment more generally. We've seen the Inflation Reduction Act, huge sums of money, or somewhat misnamed Inflation Reduction Act, I would say, a lot of public money going into green technology and net zero transition. And obviously, something of a competition between the EU and the US in particular around this. And it's not just the limits of those jurisdictions. When we look at China and other places as well, there is a strong element of public subsidy. Now, part of the context for this is that uh, the Chancellor has said that we do not want to get into a sort of subsidy war with other jurisdictions. We're going to have to wait until the autumn statement to see exactly where there might be some elements of subsidy or public support for things. But the key point about this uh, set of objectives is the UK strategy is primarily about utilising the city and private investment to achieve public sector set aims. And that's borne out in the objectives. The points that Rachel mentioned there, we're talking about the full spectrum of financial services from venture capital at the bottom all the way back up to the large banks and insurers deploying capital. You know, between sort of you know, 50 to 100 billion um, is the estimate there. And a lot of this is going to depend not just on these specific regulations, which we'll come to shortly, but also on the sort of broader competitiveness and functioning of the city and its willingness to actually deploy capital to the UK economy as opposed to the rest of the world, although that is also captured in this strategy as a, as a potential benefit, a trade benefit. If we look at uh, the competitiveness point and the broader context, I think there are a few challenges the government has recognised elsewhere, although they don't really come up so much in the strategy. Firstly, the sense that the city is overregulated. Obviously, there'll be disputes about whether that is true and the extent of which, but clearly there are regulations that are being pushed back on by the industry. And also some areas of EU regulations, for instance, that the UK opposed when it was in the EU. At the same time, it has to be said that the UK has gold-plated many of those regulations which are internationally adopted, including by the EU. And also we're in a situation where you've got a big transfer of powers, of course, from the EU to the UK regulators. And quick shout out for another podcast we've just produced recently, uh, David, on, on this whole attitude around uh, financial uh, services regulatory accountability. So there's a lot in there. Very good point, uh, Gavin. Yeah, I, I, sorry, if you didn't get it in there, I was, I was bound to. No, no, very good point. But, but we've got this sort of broader environment and a lot of the, the government is pushing through a lot of change through the Edinburgh reforms, through the Financial Services and Markets Bill. It's giving the regulators, the financial regulators, a new uh, net zero secondary objective and a new competitiveness secondary objective. But all of this is going to play in with the mix of their other regulatory aims. So I think we just have to bear in mind there is a lot put on here on the competitiveness and willingness of the city to do things. But you've got this broader context of massive change going on. And, you know, if we look at the market in a more uh, general sense, it's hugely concentrated. And in some areas and segments, such as SME growth finance, for instance, which would be hugely important in, in green financing, there is perhaps a lack, lack of competition in some areas. So you've got that broader context that has to be thought of, I think, beyond looking at specific ESG regulations. Uh, if I can just come back to another point, actually, and um, of the objectives that, that Rachel mentioned, financial stability, which is an important one because the Bank of England has moved quite quickly on all of its uh, climate stress testing. Excellent. However, what we've got to bear in mind, I think, with this is it's extraordinarily difficult in scenario planning to, to for instance, work out what capital requirements will be to reach net zero. And that's partly because there are so many assumptions about policy and what future direction policy might take. If I just point to an example, the New York Fed has just published a paper in just the previous weeks of this recording to suggest that when designing and planning for future scenarios, people should take into account the potential for a carbon tax, for instance. 
So you've got these potential things coming up in the future, which are not entirely predictable, but it is going to be very important when we're thinking about financial stability and how the economy and financial services can remain stable through what is a very planned to be a very rapid process. Back to the initial point I made, the UK wants to move a lot more quickly on this than other jurisdictions. And while that obviously has benefits, it does cause a great deal of destabilization to the economy and to financial services. So there is a delicate balancing there between the growth, net zero objectives and the stability of the economy. And it is worth pointing out, just following on from that, that actually the UK were one of the uh, the first countries to have a green finance strategy in the first place back in 2019. So they are delivering on some of those ambitions already. Very good. Well, let's look at some of the details, shall we, in terms of uh, some of the financial services updates uh, that we saw in the updated strategy. Gavin, do you want to just talk us through your highlights? I will. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot in there, and I can't claim honestly to have read all of the uh, the almost three thousand pages. But I'll pick out. But I, I promised things. our listeners that you had, Gavin. Well, well uh, maybe well, by the time this is broadcast, we will have done so. <laughs> the way it's going, it's quite possible. I'll pick out a few things that I think are most relevant to financial services, um, and probably long awaited in some circumstances as well. Uh, the first of which is the regulation of ESG ratings providers. This is a consultation from the Treasury. It's envisaged that the FCA would come up with the, the detailed rules. And the intention here is to regulate the, the sort of use of ESG data to come up with these aggregate ratings. So that's what rating agencies do. They will rate, you know, quite famously, Tesla, for instance, certain ratings companies give them a high ESG score, certain companies give them a low ESG score. The concern regulators have is, okay, well, how robust are those scores? And how can anyone outside of those ratings agencies compare the methods? And work out really what's going on sort of, you know, underneath the hood. So this is a drive of regulation towards transparency and how those scores and, and ratings are, regu- are you know, constructed and, uh, and disclosed. The UK is actually following the EU in this. ESMA came up with a recommendation essentially for this, this type of transparency, first of all, and that, that's moving ahead. I think the key points to point out for our listeners who might be very interested in this area, the regulation is going to distinguish between ESG data. So the stuff companies put out, for instance, around their ESG performance and the ratings, which takes all that data and packages it into a, you know, into a metric that's ideally comparable. Uh, so that's the first point. The second point I think that's worth mentioning is that this is designed to capture ratings products that are licensed to the market. I'm sure some of our asset management listeners will probably be thinking, well, we do ESG ratings, actually, and that's how we kind of you know work on our strategies internally by applying ratings to the investments that we make. What the Treasury is suggesting is that those sort of internal proprietary ratings wouldn't be caught by this. It would only be if you start to license that to a third party to the market. There is a question around intra-group, if you license to someone else within your financial services group, whether that's captured. But as far as it stands, you need to think that it's internal, not captured, external, probably captured. So regulations are still being made. But in the meantime, what the FCA has done is to put together an expert group to come up with a code of conduct, which will sort of govern all around this area of ESG data that's that's such a hot topic in sustainable investment. And that's following Japan, who have already done this uh, apparently quite successfully, it seems. I just want to point out two more things which are in the strategy uh, and quite important. The green taxonomy. This has been delayed and much awaited. You have a taxonomy in the EU. And what this does is to define what constitutes an environmentally sustainable business activity. 
And that's looking at all sorts of sectors from fisheries to manufacturing to financial services and so on. Now, this has been delayed partly due to the events I mentioned at the beginning, the Ukraine war, etc. Because what comes off the back of this really is when you make decisions around what is sustainable or not, that has really you know, quite significant knock-on effects to energy security, to economic activity, and so on. What the strategy confirms is that there will be a draft taxonomy published in Q3, that nuclear energy, quite controversially, will be included. Natural gas was expected to be included as well. We don't have a decision on that yet. But what we've seen in the EU, where they have included nuclear power and natural gas, is that the European Commission is currently being sued by activist groups uh, who claim that including fossil fuels, as they're stating in their case, in the taxonomy means that you are essentially doing something illegal and undermining uh, the objectives of the regulations and net zero objectives more generally. So what I think will be quite interesting here is that Q3 publication could be quite controversial and lead to legal action off the back of it. But it's also hugely important to whether the UK is going to meet its objectives in terms of net zero and, of course, that that energy security element that we mentioned at the outset. Quite a bit there, but I just want to finally mention one big important one, another delay, the sustainability disclosure requirements, which uh, some of our listeners might be familiar with. This is the economy-wide set of sustainability disclosures that go all the way through from uh, issuing companies to uh, asset managers that are investing in those companies. And those requirements were expected to take force on 30th of June this year. Uh, The FCA received lots of feedback around the need to reconstruct the rules. There are concerns around particularly the labelling of products as sustainable or not, and what you can do within the parameters of the regime in terms of investment products. The FCA is going back to the table to revise those rules, and we should see around Q3 uh, the revised final rules, which will hopefully address some of the concerns that the industry have raised. But key points here you're seeing is that these policies are quite difficult to construct and to meet all of the different objectives and stakeholders that have an interest in these things. So we're seeing a sort of delaying of the timeline. The strategy is trying to move things forward and give some certainty about when things will happen. Well, I hope that they have received so many consultation responses that actually they've been um, given lots of interesting ideas and therefore the the outcome you know, with the delay will actually produce a, a better set of regs in the future, albeit perhaps that's wishful thinking. Well, we, we, we will see. Um, Rachel, any, any other notable updates in the strategy you want to highlight? Yeah, quite a few. We won't be able to highlight all of them, but a, but a highlight for me is some more detail on transition plans and mandatory transition plans that I mean. So they put in the strategy commitment that they will consult later on this year, probably Q4, on the introduction of requirements for a mandatory transition planning for the UK's largest companies. This follows on from some of the work that has already taken place by the transition plan task force who issued their first draft framework back in November, which I think is still out for consultation at the moment. But what they will also do is they will commission an independent transition finance market review to consider what the UK financial and actually professional services ecosystem needs to do. Perhaps that also includes law firms in addition to what what they're doing already. So we'll expect more detail from that and hopefully a proper consultation as well. But they also did things, and we already touched on nature already in this podcast, but they also committed to explore how best to incorporate the final TNFD framework. So that's the Task Force on Nature-Related 
financial disclosures or often referred to as um, the little brother or sister of the TCFD. And we're actually expecting the final beta version of that in September 2023. And they're going to consider how that might be incorporated into UK policy and legislative architecture. Also in relation to the ISSB, which we're expecting the final version of in June 2023, they're going to set up two new advisory committees looking at how the ISSB standards will sit alongside the existing reporting requirements that we've got already. Now, just a bit of a reminder on the ISSB that the hope with the ISSB standard is that it will provide some convergence in the market. So they're drawing on things like the work of the TCFD. They're now bringing in some of the work on the TNFD. And the hope is that we will get a global baseline that will then be adopted by many countries, not just the UK. But what the government are going to do is they're going to set up these two advisory committees. One will be government-led and the other will be non-government-led and supported by the Financial Reporting Council. And what they will do is that they will come up with a decision, a final decision on whether to endorse those standards and within 12 months make that decision and hopefully enact that into our mandatory disclosure regime that we've got. We expect that by June 2023. There's also a consultation on carbon border adjustment mechanisms or an announcement that there will be a consultation on that. And we, we refer to that as CBAMs. And in fact, we also have recorded, David, a prior podcast on that topic. So we won't labour on this point too much. But just to remind our listeners that this usually accompanies a carbon tax or a carbon adjustment itself. And it sits alongside that carbon tax. So in the UK, we've got the UK emissions trading scheme, but it would apply to goods entering the UK and prevent what people refer to as carbon leakage or the offshoring of emissions into um, other countries where we then import those products into the UK. So that's good news. We've, of course, got similar um, things going on in the EU, but that would be good to see that consultation come through. So a few, a few things there. I haven't covered everything, David. Very good. And uh, again, would recommend to our listeners to have a look at our archives and the um, the carbon border adjustment mechanism, one we did quite a while ago, Rachel, wasn't it? It just shows how prescient we were. Exactly, uh, David. I like that. Now, how have, a question for both of you, really, we've talked through the contents of the strategy. How's it been received? Gavin? Yeah, I mean, again, there are different stakeholders with different interests here. And I think it is fair to say that the the lack of public subsidy in some elements, and I think certain decisions, for instance, around the green taxonomy have generated alarm in some areas, which is why I say this sort of reaction from the activist community is going to be quite important because you have that legal hook that the government is on, which can be utilised. I think from the industry perspective, it's fair to say, given that the almost 3,000 pages, people are still digesting some of it. I think the general direction is appreciated, which is to say a general direction where you're getting more clarity on certain things, particularly around the classifications of of green activities, uh, and also a drive towards transparency rather than strictly saying, you know, you must take X amount of your balance sheet, you know, your investors' funds and deploy them to X, Y, and Z. We we haven't gone quite down that sort of approach, which could happen eventually of of directing finance to uh, where it's perceived to be needed. What I do think, though, is as people have probably detected from the things we are saying, there is an awful lot coming. There's an awful lot of uncertainty about the form it might take. 
And there is, in a broader context of a lot of regulation or a lot of regulatory change, I should say, coming at the same time. So one of the questions I think that will often be raised by the industry in, in this is, how are we going to manage all of that change, digest it, implement it, do it in a coherent way that works for our clients? And similarly, how are the regulators going to be able to take these rules, write them, you know, consult on them, and deal with, you know, for instance, reviewing all onshore EU legislation, financial services legislation at the same time? So there's quite a lot to do. And I think really at the moment, we have to say there's a sort of big question mark over a lot of this notwithstanding the geopolitical situation, the economic environment, the consequences for energy prices from things that are going on all over the world. So there is a lot here, I think, that everyone is still trying to digest and that will play out over a much longer period. And there's a lot of competition for personnel in this area to help. So with the wave of incoming regulation, query who who will do some of the work. And that is both on the client side, as well as in the sort of supervisory authority side as well. I'll just follow on for a couple of things that Gavin said as well, if that's all right, David. In environmental circles, there there, there is a degree of scepticism. And, and I suppose that um, there always will be because it will never be perfect because it's, it's it, perfection is an impossibility. But, you know, the UK has continued its policy of expanding fossil fuel production in the North Sea, for example. I know there are arguments as to why that's necessary, but there are mounting calls from academics and even some politicians themselves saying that we should end oil and gas licenses. And it is great to have this wonderful mobilizing green investment strategy. However, at the same time, we should stop issuing new licenses for oil and gas exploration here. I know there will be people that have arguments that counter that, but it just is important making it clear that there is that out there as well in terms of people's views. People also talk about um, the issue of the delivery gap. So we've got a gap. And in fact, this is often the case between ambition and delivery on the ground. It's very hard to, to, to meet that gap, but undeniably, there is still a gap. And I think that the proof will be in the pudding in terms of how some of these consultations um, will work their way through and what turns out into actionable policy and legislation on, on the back of it. Okay, no, well, thank, thank you for that. Now, Rachel, you've, you've mentioned nature having had a bigger role in this strategy. I'll just say a word or two more about that. Yeah, so I've already mentioned the ISSB and the fact that that has now embedded certain nature-related reporting within it, which, which is great. The TNFD itself is mentioned in the report quite a few times. And uh, the government says in the report that they hope that it will enable investors to make more nature-positive capital allocation decisions. And they're talking about how they're going to incorporate that more and more into policy and legislative architecture. But again, in addition to looking at nature-related risk, there's also nature as, a, as an investment opportunity. And what the government are going to do is they're going to work with the Green Finance Institute and they're going to look at more options for blended finance models. And they announced earlier on this year their big nature impact fund, which they've set up there. They're investing, which is a good example of a blended finance model. They also announced this new nature markets framework. And what they're hoping to do in this nature markets framework is to develop a suite of nature investment standards to scale up these nature-related credit markets that we think are going to really boom um, any moment, but there's just, just lacking some standards for investors to have the confidence to invest in them and also develop projects 
that can create these sort of um, nature credits. It's very exciting because we don't we don't even know yet what the art of the possible is. It could be sort of endless what you can create a, um, a nature credit from and use the financial services industry to drive capital to areas where we really need a nature positive outcome. So that's exciting, but we'll have, we'll have to wait and see what the nature markets framework looks like, of course. They've also committed to consult later on this year on certain specific steps and interventions um, needed to mobilize additional finance through in high integrity voluntary markets. And, and the core word there is high integrity. Great. Now, Gavin, we, we've talked a lot about what this is going to mean in terms of the financial services industry. And some will look at it and say, this is just a load more regulation. Others will say there are some opportunities here. Any thoughts on that question? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna hedge my answer a bit, David. I'm afraid it it's sort of both. It is it is more regulation. I don't think we can deny that it is an attempt at trying to drive activity. But as, to go back to my earlier point, a lot of these regulations are framed around transparency. So the idea there is you sort of set parameters and then get everyone to disclose things, and that will through you know consumer and investor behaviour drive more uh, capital into green technology into net zero transition. So it is more regulation. I mean, that's true, but not quite as punitive as regulation can be in some circumstances. But there are clearly opportunities here just because there is, you know, go back to my earlier point around, you know, how stringent are uh, the net zero commitments made by different countries. I mean, that is debatable, but it is also true. There is a global drive towards net zero transition. There is clearly a, a massive capital sort of emerging for green technology. And it's clear that certain countries are taking the view that the state can lead or at least show a lot of leadership on doing this. So there's clearly an opportunity there for private investment. And given the scale of the City of London, you would think there are resources that can be deployed. Now, where they will be deployed, I think, is a big question. But I mean, there are still, despite the opportunities, there are still difficulties there. And if we take, for instance, in the UK, we have that growth gap. And I mentioned earlier around SMEs, but we look at where financing goes to growing companies in the UK, or where, more importantly, growing companies in the UK go for their financing. There is a gap in funding in, in the UK. What will tend to happen when a company reaches a certain stage of growth and wants to keep going is that they will look internationally for their finance. So I think there are, there are opportunities here, but I think there are still, always, it's not even necessarily gaps in the regulation, but gaps in the framework as a whole, which will perhaps make it more difficult to meet some of these objectives. So, yeah, really, it's all of the above, more, more regulation, more opportunity. But there are still more challenges there, I think, that need to be addressed. And it does come back down again to what's the role of finance? Where is finance going in terms of deploying capital? Uh, and more, more generally, how competitive is the economy and how competitive is the financial services sector at all levels? So one last question. What's coming down the track? What, what, what do you anticipate happening next? Rachel. Plenty of work, plenty of uh, consultations to come out and responses to those consultations. You know, here's where the hard work starts, frankly, David. Uh, you know, the strategy is good. It's just how do we deliver on the strategy? There's a lot harder. And I suppose a lot of that will depend on if we have a change of government. And it'll be interesting to hear your views on how they might take the direction of travel if we do have a change in government. But I think, yeah, hard work and I suppose delivering on the objectives and the strategies in this strategy. Well, you, you raise an interesting question. And look, I think um, 
uh, from the Labour Party, we're hearing quite a lot of talk about how the net zero strategy is very closely tied in with their economic strategy. So uh, trying to seize opportunities that relate to reducing carbon emissions, getting to net zero, uh, but also finding ways in which the UK economy can can prosper, I think is likely to be a priority of any future Labour government. So at one level, I would have thought probably quite a lot of continuity here. There may be differences in the detail. Labour also pro-nuclear at the moment. So so on that question, I suspect that's not going to change very much. But I would have thought that they're likely to be pretty supportive of this agenda. Uh, Gavin, any thoughts on what you can see coming down the track? I was actually just going to chime in with another question for you, David. I mean, given the the controversial point around public subsidies here and obviously the government or the chancellor's intention not to follow the direction of the US, would you see under a Labour government or a different political dynamic more scope for public resources being put towards net zero transition? Or do you think there'll be very much continuity even in that aspect between the Labour government and the current government? Well, I mean, Labour are talking about you know, spending an additional, or I think they would describe it as investing an additional £28 billion uh, pounds in terms of uh, green transformation. Where they quite are with that and adhering to the current government's fiscal rules, I think is 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 a slightly difficult question. So whether that all hangs together, I'm not entirely sure. So I think there might be more willingness to spend uh, money. Uh, they would see that as as being a good investment. But you are still, for whoever is in government, I would have thought you're still going to be faced with some pretty tough constraints on public spending, state of the public finances after 2024 uh, is unlikely to be sort of terribly strong. And um, you know the scope in which they're prepared to sort of borrow uh, to invest isn't entirely clear. I, I might also suggest it's not entirely clear what the markets would say in those circumstances either. And my my, you know, my suspicion is that Rachel Reeves as shadow chancellor would be a lot more cautious than, say, Ed Miliband, who leads on net zero and energy and the environment uh, would be. So, uh, so I think there's potentially some tension uh, within a any. Labour government on that particular point. But yeah, maybe they would go a bit further uh, than the current government. But there's a big question as to whether the UK could afford to enter into a subsidy race um, with a much bigger and wealthier economy like the US, or or whether the strategy has to kind of work around what what the the, the bigger players are doing. Good. Well, um, managed to contribute something, hopefully to that podcast but can i thank rachel and gavin for doing uh, all the hard work and uh, for reading the 2840 pages um and uh, setting out quite so clearly uh, what is in them particularly focused on the green finance strategy so many thanks to them many thanks uh, to you for listening as you will have heard we've done podcasts on uh, the accountability of the financial services regulators and on carbon border adjustment mechanisms and carbon taxes and so on. So um, if you've got scope for listening to uh, more of our Policy in Practice podcasts, 
there's plenty of opportunity for you there. Um, thanks for listening. Uh, thanks to uh, Rachel and Gavin. And uh, do tune in to our next podcast. Thank you very much. Bye.